Hello and welcome back, listener. How are you? You are listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast season two. And today's episode is a two-parter because there's just so much information to kind of go through. It's a, it's a very topical uh, subject and one that is just cannot be shoehorned into a single episode. So we are creating a two-parter for you. We're taking you on a journey of education and surrogacy storytelling. I am Wes. I'm your only host today because Michael can't be with us today, but I'm really enjoying being on my own for a change. It's good to mix it up. I absolutely love being in the studio and it's such a pleasure speaking with such well thought of experts, people who are in this field and who, who know it inside out because we only want to make sure that we give you like really, really accurate information by people who know exactly what they are saying. So thank you for downloading us again. We also have our fabulous sponsor for our season two podcast, who are the renowned fertility clinic established in 1989. Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre have an outstanding track record and have created over 7,000 babies as a result of their care over the last 34 years. Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre is a leading surrogacy clinic and was awarded Surrogacy Fertility Clinic of the Year in 2008 and again in 2022. We have an incredible episode in store for you today. We will be discussing the current surrogacy law and why reform happened and the recommendations and the impact on surrogacy for the future. It's going to be an incredible two-parter episode and will be super useful to hear firsthand from the legal experts in surrogacy and family law space. We have two leading surrogacy experts with us today. So let's get cracking. Why don't we start with Andrew Powell and give us a quick hello. Who are you? Where are you from? Hi, um, I'm Andrew Powell. I am a barrister at 4PB. I specialise in all aspects of family law related to children. Um, but I have a particular emphasis, as you've said, on, on surrogacy work and uh, creating family structures. So I do a lot of adoption work as well. I am, I've been a barrister for the last well, 15 years and my interest in surrogacy was spiked when I was at university as an undergraduate and more recently, well not more recently, almost 10 years ago now, I spent four months working at a firm in Los Angeles that specialised in surrogacy work. So I had a real, really good opportunity to see a cross-border perspective on surrogacy in a jurisdiction where it's very different to what it is now. So that's a brief introduction to me. Amazing. And Andrew Spearman, you're like our resident uh, lawyer, aren't you? Yes. You know, you've been on this podcast before. You're involved in our Mexico City programme. It only seemed right to have you on this particular one because I know that you've been involved with the kind of the surrogacy reform from the start. So give the listener, if they haven't already listened to one of the episodes that you've been on, a bit of a who you are and where you're from. So yes, so I'm Andrew Spearman. I am a solicitor. Uh, it's always slightly intimidating to follow Andrew Powell because his list and accolades are, are quite extensive. But for my own, I am the head of the family team at Leighton's. I, I specialise in surrogacy and particularly parenthood and uh, legal parenthood, realigning legal parenthood from different people, whether it's through surrogacy or fertility journeys or transgender identities, and making sure that they are where they're meant to be, or at least the way the law is meant to be for them. Uh, I have been working in the field for 
yes, yeah, probably about 12, 15 years now uh, doing different things. And uh, bizarrely, I didn't realize, Andrew, that yours interest came from undergraduate, as mine did as well. Looking at some of the statutes and looking at things that just really annoyed me uh, before the 2008 ad came in. And so do we look lawyer trumps now? Uh, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel, I'm not going to play that game because Mr. Power will always beat. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Look, let's jump straight into this because I think, you know, both of you have been experienced and, and, and are very familiar with the, the surrogacy reform. And it's the current status is that it is with government. But I think I wanted to give the listener an understanding, first of all, you know, is why did the current surrogacy law need reforming? Andrew Spearman. Yeah. Um, how to describe it other than just calling it a mess? unfit for for use uh, i think the law commission gave an absolute slating in in the right way and after doing all their research they they still concluded that it was completely not fit for purpose as well uh i think that the statute originally came around for the best of intentions uh, i don't criticize it coming around in the first place and i think a lot of work went into the creation of it as well and the statutory provisions have a, a good momentum behind them as well but the reality is that since 2008 and certainly since 2010, when I got more heavily involved with same-sex couples in particular, um, each of the provisions other than one, I think, have just slowly been demolished. They don't represent the reality of a person going through a surrogacy journey. They don't re- they don't recognise, or, or people who are going through surrogacy don't recognise the law for something that they are doing. I Usually when I meet clients, I'm talking about the law wrapping around their journey. Everybody's journey is slightly different. They find their surrogate, they work with a surrogate, they've got a great relationship with their surrogate. They engage with agencies, they do it internationally or domestically, and they, they, they go through it. And then I have to explain how the law from the dark ages is still there to, to come over and try and beat you over the head. And actually, it shouldn't be that way around. The law should be there to support journeys and make sure it's safe and secure. And everybody knows what they're doing. And you're all adults. So move forward in that way so so the reforms when they're proposed and the ones that are certainly in the draft bill are a great consolidation i mean anybody who who knows me knows i'm quite critical of them at the same time but they are a great way forward and a necessity for making sure that as an industry but also as a legitimate form of parenthood it's codified in the proper way and i think it's fair to say that as a as a country we're lucky that we actually have a law that that governs surrogacy and an infrastructure that allows us to work within it. Not every country has that or not every destination that people go to for surrogacy has that. But I think it's fair to acknowledge that while we do have and are fortunate that we have that infrastructure legally, it isn't fit for purpose because the original surrogacy reform bill was created in 1985. Now, I know there have been some amendments to that to kind of try and keep up with society, but generally the current law isn't fit for purpose, doesn't represent people in the right way and doesn't really represent how modern families are created. Andrew Powell, would you kind of give us a bit of an overview of what, what's the process being of the review of the law and, and kind of how have we got to where we've got to right now where it's been submitted to government and we're waiting for government to respond? So it began, I think, around about 2016, 17, which sounds like a long time ago, mm-hmm. when there were initial calls for reform, or there have been calls for reform for a very long time. And I think it's probably important for listeners to understand what the Law Commission is and who they are. And the Law Commission is an independent body, independent from government, who are tasked with looking at areas of law reform. And surrogacy was one of the things that came up a few years ago. And so their process has been to, well, first of all, look at the law, see what it is, see what it says, see what the problems are. 
but then really take advantage of the key people, the stakeholders. I kind of hate that phrase, stakeholders, mm-hmm. but it's it's relevant. The people who are involved in the process to understand what's been problematic. And so it really began in earnest around about 2019 when they started doing kind of not research groups, but kind of brainstorming panels, if you like, where they would get these key stakeholders together, ask us questions about what was working, what wasn't working, to develop a law that reflected modern society, as Andrew has said. And I think part of the problem is is really, as you've just touched on, Wes, the history of the current law, that it came about from a process when there was no law. So there was no law pre-1985. And it was only because of one particular case in 1985 that it brought about the Surrogacy Arrangements Act, which was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to a particular situation, which then prohibited, right or wrongly, commercial surrogacy. And then the 1990 Act that came into force, it was very much of its time. Mm -hmm. And I think surrogacy is one of those areas where it really highlights the problem of the law not really keeping pace with changes in society. And what we're seeing is, is that these changes are happening at a much faster pace than the law is keeping up with. So when the Law Commission really began their work in 2019, they set out with this ambition to try and reform it, to make it more modern. And I think one of the important things to say, because whatever we in the legal community might think of the proposals, which I'm sure we will come on to, uh, Professor Nick Hopkins, who's been the main commissioner who's, who's led it, said at the very beginning that, you know, we need to recognise surrogacy as a legit, legitimate way of becoming a parent. And the law is there to protect people. The law should be there to provide certainty. And at present, we don't really have that. And I think one of the things which is a major issue, which I think people are often surprised about by surrogacy, is that, and I'm sorry to kind of bring it onto one particular point, because there's so many points, but one of the biggest points which is the Law Commission's tried to look at is this concept which is extremely archaic, whereby under English law, the woman who gives birth to a child is always the child's mother. So even if you've used, uh, had the help of a gestational surrogate who it's not her eggs, she has no genetic relationship to the child, she's always the child's legal mother, regardless of what jurisdiction that child's been born in. And so it's things like that which were simply out of date. And so I think when you speak to the anybody who doesn't really have any concept of surrogacy or law, when you tell them that fact, they're going to think, that doesn't sound right, they're not the legal mother. And so it's things like that which the Law Commission were then trying to look at. And so it then came to the publication of their massive report in March of this year, March 2023, when they set out in, I think, what was a 504-page document, uh, which some of us got in the cloak of the night yeah, that I then remember through the night <laughs> the executive summary executive summary is 25 pages i yeah. think um but that then that document then set out quite extensively the reforms that they were proposing and the government has 6 months to respond to what they're going to plan to do which is broadly where we are now mm-hmm. so those proposals which i'm sure we'll come on to are in that document and it's trying to make the law fit for purpose yeah, which and that's a good word it does to a degree, but not necessarily going all the way there. And, and I think like people would acknowledge that we're never going to please everyone and make this law that everyone's really happy with. I just want to pick up on one of the points you just, just mentioned as well, actually, Andrew, is that the knee-jerk reaction to a scenario which didn't have a law to represent it. And I also think that if you look at the political landscape at that, at that mm. point in time, 
Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Yeah. Uh, we, it was part of the area of Section 28. Yeah. You know, it was it was a piece of legislation that was thrown together because they needed something and didn't have it. So I think when you look at all of the foundations which were in place that created it, it's actually not surprising that it doesn't represent reality, mm. uh, maybe at the time when, when baby Cotton was born, but not not now. And I don't think, it, uh, like you, you, you both said, it hasn't evolved with how society has evolved. And often that's the case with society moving at a much quicker pace than the law can keep up with. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the original acts were brought in at a period of outrage and there was a knee-jerk reaction to something that clearly needed regulation. And, you know, as, as the old phrase goes, you know, you make decisions in haste or you make them in anger, they're never going to be the right decisions in the long term. And over time, as the 1990 Act and as the, the 2008 Act has, has had its flow and as, you know, judges or lawyers or people who work in the industry have, have worked through it methodically for many, many moons, it shows it wasn't and isn't and isn't right but you don't get there without having that that methodical process and and there is a there is an upside to having a, a not fit for purpose statute is you get an awful lot of academic discussion around it you get a lot of legal discussion around it and you get a good societal discussion around a subject which needs to be in the light mm -hmm. and not just hidden under a bushel there is nothing to be hidden about surrogacy no. and less discussion is great for it. And I think it's also worth acknowledging that law is never going to keep up with society. There's also, always going to be a lag, isn't there? That's always going to be the case. And that's not just about surrogacy law, it's about mm -hmm. every single law. And, and we're not unique in that scenario where our law is out of date with the reality of what happens in, 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 in general life. It's a really interesting bits to pick up, and I know we're going to try and pick them up through the podcast. And I don't know who wants to take this, so I'll, I'll let I'll let you uh, kind of fight for the. I'll, the, I'll, prod, I'll prod him. It'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> could you give us kind of the highlights of what the Law Commission are proposing, and those like really pertinent bits that are such a step change from where we currently are? I mean, how long have you got? Uh, I mean, as as Andrew says, you know, you've got such a chunky document, all with relevant parts, every single section to it, even down to the the, the schedules that come out of the back of it. They, they, apart from you need a cold flannel and a big glass of wine to read them, they are really good stuff. You know, the people who went into it, the law commission's work that's gone into it. I don't think anybody can dispute has been no and i'll just jump in there because i know we all of us on this podcast here recording today have all, have all been part of the process with the law commission mm. and i really want to commend the law commission mm. nick and the team because they i think they really m massively engaged with the community and i think they really had this commitment to do a really good job and the, what they're kind of proposing and what's been issued to government might not be everyone's cup of tea or they might have wanted more but i think it's we would all acknowledge how difficult a task this has been to get the the ideal we know there have been some very loud voices in, in opposition to surrogacy generally and whether you agree with it or not everyone has to be heard and i think the the law commission did a good job of, of listening to everyone and as an organisation, when we saw the finished uh, proposal, on a whole, we we were we were overall really happy with it because I think it's come a long way from you know what where we currently are. Yes, yeah, I mean definitely, and nothing nothing I say detracts from from that statement you said because you know, hands down to them, it's a phenomenal piece mm -hmm. of work to to put their minds to it and all the commissioners that then fed into it as well. Yeah. 
But taking the, uh, the the deep dive into actually what it is and actually answering your question, Wes, for a change, I think it's been broken down into some some constituent parts. I think the most obvious one that everybody was looking at was the introduction of a new pathway, the new pathway for domestic surrogacy in particular. And here they were very clear about it being domestic, not international. Uh, they were keen to promote a domestic arrangement so it gave uh, greater certainty, which is one of the biggest criticisms that can be levelled at the current statutes. Not the only one, but one of the biggest mm -hmm. ones is the lack of actual certainty as to what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and the legal parenthood that Andrew mentioned earlier, uh, and who is the legal parent, and when are they legal parent. Now, the new pathway has some interesting provisions within it as well, which I'm not going to say necessarily make it simple, but it does make it clearer. Uh, and the trigger points throughout of it, who is going to be this child's legal parent, is then set down clearly on certain events happening, other events not happening. But for me, one of the most important parts of the pathway is actually the pre-checks, the pre-work. So the first time we see a piece of legislation that puts the child's welfare and the assessments around the, the safety, security and safeguarding in the broadest sense of the term, right at the front before any conception, before any embryo transfer takes place. Quite a lot of the time, I find myself, usually with Andrew in court together, trying to deal with these matters as a bit of a fait accompli to the court. The child's already there. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter. We've already hit the, the big ticket item, which is a child's been born. That's where he's getting to. But we have also say our, our clients sometimes rather than we. I think we're involved. It doesn't get quite that way, um, I'd like to say anyway. Um, but we're trying to undo stuff that should have been done before. So it, I use the examples here. We've got counselling for intended parents and the surrogate as a, as a requirement. It's got legal advice for all the parties as a requirement. It's got the uh, background checks and welfare assessments about the future child that's going to be born prior to any of that. It's all consolidated into the surrogacy statement, which everybody can then have a talk about and actually sign off. So regulated surrogacy organisations like MSJ will be going through uh, each of those sections with you and, and having a check and balance. And that check and balance is something that's necessary to safeguard children's long-term interests. And, and the parents as well, tender parents. A lot of people could comment that it's a lot of work to do and a lot of pre-work to do if, if you're not going to have a successful pregnancy or it could be a lot of effort and work and rigmarole and hoop jumping and, and actually adding uh, the heavy hand of regulation where it's not previously been necessary. Uh, and unfortunately, I would say that's a rather rose-tinted view of, well, if it's not necessary, if everything's gone tickety-boo and running along nicely, it's where it doesn't go right and things haven't gone on point or the child has been put at risk or that all these things which, unless you have those pre-checks, people don't appreciate why you need them. Yeah. Um, so I think and, that's... And, I, and I think it's not... like It might be rose-tinted outside of an organisation like MHD, but we absolutely do all of those things already pre-conception. So for us, it's, it's, it's no different and we absolutely see the value of making sure that everyone is as it is at that place ready preconception because you know it is all of those things are important yeah definitely and any good organization with their salts would would be doing that other parts of the introductions obviously we look at the regulated surrogacy organization that's another huge one that's coming mm -hmm. and actually having somebody who's actually got oversight who actually can guide the party still on a not-for-profit and a critical part of the reforms was to keep it an altruistic basis try and avoid the commercial arrangements so we still see charities and, and not-for-profits being the central pivot point within the uk for those regulated surrogacy statements with the organizations that you know, sign them and go through them and do those checks. It's a curiosity that they are putting the RSOs, the regulated surrogate organisations, 
in quite a pivotal point and actually require the welfare assessment to be undertaken by the RSO. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how the RSOs adapt to the new change in regulation as it comes in and the dialogue, sure. because obviously as a, an organisation that's then regulated in turn by the HFEA, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, that's going to be a huge dialogue. And there's not been a huge amount of noise from the HFEA thus far yeah. and that's certainly a, an interesting point I know they're very interested and I know it's yeah. going to be that and, yeah. and that's a big task for them to take on I can see why they've not made much noise about it yet but the wheels will no doubt be turning and we're waiting for things to come down and I think from a, from our point of view as a, as a potential RSO, it's a big responsibility because that that assessment, you know, currently is done by CAFCAS, who are a governing body with with expertise in in understanding the the needs of children and families and and are able to assess on that on that basis. And I would absolutely say experts in there. And if you haven't listened to the specific episode of with with uh, Susie on CAFCAS, mm. that's earlier in 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 the season. But for we see that as a massive responsibility uh, as an RSO, and we as an organisation are really, really happy about it. Until we know exactly what that entails, you know, I'm sure we'll approach it with the, the, the way we approach everything. But it does feel like a big responsibility. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to do the the consents and and payment side of matters, or do we to roll with that? I'm <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to throw Andrew under the bus. Just completely throwing him under the bus. Um, I'm actually going to deal with something completely different. Oh, and throwing people under the bus is normally my job, Andrew. So. <laughs> ah, well, you know, two shoves. I mean, the one thing I would say, actually, just to make sure that listeners are absolutely clear on, is that all of these things that we're talking about are proposals. Yes. The law hasn't changed. And unless and until a bill becomes an act, it just remains as it is. And as I said earlier, the government is obliged to respond within six months, which is roundabout now. So we don't know what they're yet saying. And the difficulty with all of this, again, sorry to be the kind of the, the doom and gloom barrister, but the problem with all of this is that within the political cycle of where we are at present, there's an election has to be by January 2025. So whether there's a political appetite to pick up this bill and run with it is yet to be seen. And so all of it is all kind of very much hypothetical. The law hasn't changed. But what I was actually going to deal with is some of the less spoken about provisions in the bill that I have recently come, come across in cases where there have been situations under the current statute where the law doesn't really provide an answer. And so, for example, one of the proposals in the bill, well, in one of the schedules, is that in the event of really tragic circumstances where a child dies as a result of surrogacy, but before a parental order can be obtained, the intended parents can still obtain a parental order um, that would recognise that child as being a child of their family. And I think that's probably quite important in terms of, well, for any family who has to go through that tragedy and that trauma, but to have some form of legal recognition, because at the present, it's not clear whether that's possible or not. And the proposal would be that, that they would be able to get a parental order. We know that there have been cases, again, other tragic cases where um, intended parents have died before a parental order can be made and they've died at different stages within the process, i.e. whether it's before the application's made or before the child's born. And in those circumstances, the court has actually applied human rights principles to allow an order to be made. And again, the bill proposes that there should be a parental order made for those parents that die before 
to get into that stage. So again, slightly somber note to, to touch no, on. But, but I think you're right, Andrew, because I know from just, just generally our community where there has been, unfortunately, those, those occasions where a child has died and it leaves, the current law leaves the, the intended parents in this limbo where they're not able to act and manage the situation legally. It, exactly. and, and that can cause already more trauma on top of trauma and I think it's and I think I'm glad you, you brought it up because I think we hear all about all of the the things that people typically want to hear about the bill but there are some of those ones that will make a massive impact to people that uh, haven't really that, that pe people just don't know about uh, and I think as you say about the, the trauma on top of trauma that if you're dealing with the death of a you know a, a neonate a young child and you're unable to do things that you should be able to do as a parent, such mm -hmm. as res registering the child's death and being unable to do so until you have a parental order. Well, that's, you know, it's just yeah. unthinkable. And make any necessary arrangements exactly. and all of those things and, and try to deal with the situation. You don't have, under the current law, you yeah. don't have the tools or the capability to do that. And, you you know, you find yourself having to negotiate with the surrogate to give those kind of consent and so forth. So that's, I think that's one thing that is worth highlighting, that it's a real positive. One of the things that Andrew uh, mentioned just then was consent. So in the bill consent remains unchanged. So, uh, the current law is, is that you can't dispense with consent. And under the new provision, there is an ability to dispense with that consent. And that is bringing it in line with the adoption law, where you can dispense with consent if it's in the child's best interests. And the only problem with that is that if this bill does become law, it's unlikely that it will act retrospectively in the way it's drafted currently. And so in those cases where the consent hasn't been forthcoming, it's unlikely that if the law does change, say you, that consent can be dispensed with, that those cases then fall under the umbrella of being able to dispense with the consent. Because when the surrogate went into that arrangement, she knew that she could withhold that consent sure. and it would be moving the goalposts mm -hmm. to do so otherwise. So it does make a lot of sense to have the consent ability to be able to dispense with it if it's in the child's best interests. And of course, family court judges deal with best interests. It's their bread and butter work. And so if it seemed to be appropriate to dispense with consent, then it can be dispensed with. So that is a really good positive from the from the bill. I'd probably, I'd probably say just building on that, something that you're probably more familiar with than I am, Andrew, in that the actual application and how judges dispense with that consent. Um, those who are, are cynical about that, are worried about that reform, could say, you know, dispensing with consent, which is a bedrock for the whole process and has continued to be a bedrock for it, you know, and then saying, well, if a judge is just going to dispense with it, why is it? Why, is, why am I actually being asked if we're going to say no and then I'm going to be overridden anyway? Is it is this a real consent? Am I actually being asked to give consent? So I think that people forget that apart from the fact that the child's best interest is the core and that is, as you say, the family judge's bread and butter work. But it, I'm anticipating and I know that the, the reform anticipates basically porting a lot of jurisprudence from adoption law around dispensing with consent. It's not an easy threshold to get over. Dispensing with a birth mother's consent uh, in this sense, both the surrogate or uh, the adoptive parents' consent, you have to go through a lot uh, to get there. And judge isn't just going to roll over and say, fine, okay, well, actually, I can see that sounds like a great idea. Let's just steamroll steam it through in a summary judgment. You, you go through the mill with it. And so for people who are concerned around that consent being eroded and it not being a central tenant of English law, I'd say, well, you've got to balance the child's best interests here. The cases which 
Andrew deals with an awful lot are ones which you see a situation where the surrogate isn't asking to have the child live with her. Um, not all the time, anyway. Most of the time, she, it's her objection to something that's happened during the process. This is her mm -hmm. only lever to pull to have her voice heard. Mm -hmm. And it's an objection based on something else. And yeah. she's not saying that she wants to be a legal parent. And in the case where she's married, her husband is also the legal parent at the moment. That's that's not the case. And and this, we're just sort of changing it slightly to saying we hear that. But what we're hearing as well is that the child's best interest at the moment, a judge is barred from dealing with that. Yeah. And the new proposals actually accept it. But am I, am I right? Is that fair to say that the, the threshold for dispensing the consent is, is still quite a challenge? It's interesting. I think that's a really good question. Because putting my hat on with adoption work, mm. a judge doesn't do it lightly. A judge isn't going to lightly just say, well, I'll dispense with consent. If you have a surrogate who is opposing the making of a parental order, so is not giving consent, I would have thought the test that would have to be applied is pretty much the same test that's applied in adoption, which is having a regard to the child's welfare. And when you're looking at welfare in adoption and surrogacy, surrogacy cases, you're looking at the child's lifelong welfare. And that means, if listeners have ever, ever had any experience of the family court dealing with applications for child arrangements orders or things like residence and contact, that test of welfare is only really looking at the child's minority, so until they become an adult. But with adoption and surrogacy, the court is looking at the child's lifelong welfare, i.e. until they reach their majority and they become an adult and beyond. And so the test that the judge is going to be looking at is to say, well, is it going to be, going to be prejudicial to this child for their lifelong welfare if I don't make this order? And so that assessment becomes much more almost philosophical because you're looking at well does this child need to have this order because if we're saying that these two people or this individual is this child's parent or parents then it's going to be in their best interest that you make that order so as I say I don't think courts will take it lightly there will have to be a process where there's scrutiny but I think it does give a lot more flexibility because I think the cases that I've seen where consent has been an issue you can imagine on the facts of particular certain cases that had the judge had the ability to dispense with the consent, they might have done so. I'm not saying they would have. They're saying they not might sure. have done so. Yeah. And so I think that does give a bit more flexibility. And actually what it's doing is, again, this is our bread and butter as, as family lawyers, it's bringing the child into the centre. Yeah. It's, it's making the child the centre of attention as it should be. Yeah. Because what is best for this child, yeah. particularly if you've got a situation where the surrogate doesn't necessarily want to have a Relation, ongoing relationship with the child, but as Andrew and, and, and like Andrew said, it might be that the dispute isn't actually about exactly. the child. And I think it, exactly. Uh, and I think it, would it be a fair assessment, Andrew, that the new proposal gives the judges the tools to be able to exactly. act in the best interest of the child. And, and 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 it's great that you acknowledge that you know that threshold to dispense of of that consent might be very high, but at least they have that tool to be able to use if they deem it appropriate. Exactly. And I think and I think the one thing to, to say as well about best interests is that that is the court's lodestar. So it's always going to be at the forefront of the judge's mind. It's an area of law that turns up difficult, complex facts sometimes. So there might be cases where it doesn't seem to be, it wouldn't be in the child's best interest to to dispense with it. But I think it just gives the judge that more, as you say, the toolkit is is bigger when you have that ability. So that is certainly a, a welcome proposal. 
Yeah, and I think it's like, obviously, this this particular podcast is very legal focused and it's really lovely to hear you both articulate in very legal terminology, but which is also easy to understand, to, to try and give really the listener a real understanding of kind of the thought process of, of you as, as legal professionals, but also, what you know, the things the judges have to consider. I want to take it back a little bit because we did we and this sometimes happens on podcasts is we get down some kind of rabbit holes and and, I, I and the rabbit holes again. No, I know, and they're really interesting rabbit holes because and and I, and I think it's really worth acknowledging that you know the we could be sit here all day debating all of the key components of the new proposals and there's so many interesting elements and lots of them that then have an impact on on other legislation which is mm. going to need to have to change as a result of this one and you know we could go on all day but I think what I'd like to really emphasize and really help the listener understand that what are some of the real key changes to the proposal and I think I'm going to kind of make an assessment and kind of frame it from my point of view and then we can perhaps discuss it but from my understanding of it is that there are going to be as a proposal in the new bill there are going to be two pathways one which is very similar to our existing pathway whereas if you don't work with a, an RSO or registered surrogacy organization to help you navigate your pathway you would follow the existing pathway which means that you wouldn't get parental responsibility at birth you would then have to follow the process of applying to the courts for parental order post-birth and go through the existing process where you then have an assessment from CAFCAS you then go to court and hopefully everything's granted and it's tickety-boo or the alternative is, if you work with an organisation like us, we, as on your behalf, complete all of that those assessments which are a part of the proposal. We, we complete the statement pre-conception, the surrogacy journey hopefully goes nice and smoothly, and then once the baby is born, the law recognises you as the legal parents from birth, and then there's no further assessments or parental order applications needed to to happen you get that parental responsibility it's recognized at birth you get your balloons you pick your baby you go skipping out of the hospital <laughs> and you get on with your life and 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 as a real crude assessment of it that's the reality of what the two proposals are am i right or am i wrong I mean, you're always right, Wes. That's what I come to learn. Uh, never disagree with you. Uh, you sound like just like my husband. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Funny, Mike and I talk quite a lot as well. <laughs> One day I'll show you the WhatsApp chat. Um, I think that's that's a fair assessment. I mean, there's a huge number of nuances to that, and I'm not uh, we've, we're simplifying it, but that's, that's a completely fair assessment. I think the critical one, just to add to that general statement, is your RSO and the work that you do has to be domestic UK. Correct. We yeah. can't have any international elements to that. You can't have a, a domestic arrangement where you send your surrogate to the US for, to get the fertility treatment and then come back again. That also doesn't work. So it has to all the part, all the constituent parts have to be within the United Kingdom for us for you to qualify for this new pathway. So everything else, absolutely everything else, falls on to back into the old pathway, the old one that we're currently dealing with, all the problems and the antiquated problems. And the only difference there, and the only bit of change, um, important change, is the consent issue, which is going to also impact the international journey as well. So you'll be able to deal with that dispensing of consent. But for most, certainly, on if you look at North American countries, that's not really an issue anyway, frankly. No, no. Um, there are other jurisdictions where it is, uh, and Andrew and I have dealt with enough of those uh, cases where consent is an issue in those other countries. But the benefit is exactly as you say, the domestic pathway, regulated surrogacy organisation, surrogacy statement, pre-checks, parenthood from birth, and some 
interesting uh, complicated provisions around parental responsibility and i think for a lot of people you know who have that anxiety around the current law where they aren't recognized as the legal parents from birth that often gives uh, intended parents a lot of anxiety about the current pathway and they they really don't have much choice but to suck it up if they want to do domestic surrogacy and i think with the new pathway they will have that certainty for, from at right the start which i think will 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 make it very clear that you have a choice if you want to have that certainty from start you, you use this pathway but if you don't want to use this pathway for whatever reason and are comfortable with uh, dealing with that anxiety around the uncertainty post-birth, you can take that and, and have choices. Thank you so much, both of you. I really, really enjoyed that. And I found it absolutely fascinating. Having worked on the bill and the proposals as part of it all the way through, it's really interesting to kind of debate all of the topics with you and kind of flip between what the current law is and, you know, what we can hopefully see in the future. But I think what was also worth pointing out and Andrew Powell kind of talked about it so eloquently is that this isn't here right now and this might take a long time to come and it's uncertain and we don't know for certain how long it's going to come in or even if it ever comes in. So let's let's all be really hopeful and we hope that we can continue to evolve as a society in the UK with a, with a legal framework that allows us to recognise all family forming and gives everyone equal status to kind of have their parental rights recognised. So, Andrews, thank you so much for your time as always. I'll leave you both to get back to your very busy lives. I know you are very busy. Thank you for coming with us today. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as me. Don't forget, we do have an incredible second part to this episode, proudly sponsored by Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre, one of the top performing fertility clinics in the UK and has some of the best success rates in the east of England. If you want to find out more about My Surrogacy Journey, then please head over to our website, which is mysurrogacyjourney.com or find us on Instagram at officialmysurrogacyjourney. We also have a TikTok account, so follow us there too. If you liked this episode, then please subscribe to our series and we will have another episode out soon. Thank you for listening. It's been great to be on my own. Sorry, Michael, but I love you really. I have been your My Surrogacy Journey podcast host. Goodbye. Goodbye.